Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us, or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. I'm back and so happy to be here with all of you. I had to take the day off yesterday to, to move. Uh, so I I ended up running around uh, New York City, uh, hands bloodied, smelling like a Sasquatch, I would assume. I don't technically know what a Sasquatch smells like, but I think I smelled like one. Um, and it was a rough it was a rough day. Yeah, moving is always something of a, of a nightmare. Uh, so anyway, I, I, I missed I, I know I missed it. The, the, the long reign of the mooch has come to an end. Hey, the glorious reign of the mooch. Hey, everybody. Anthony Scaramucci, uh, no longer White House. I know you heard this yesterday, but I, I this is one of those days where I happen to be away from you all. I happen to, you know, just have to step away from my my radio family for a few minutes, and sure enough, something something happens that will be a lot of fun. You know, I wanted to do a whole like, hey, we want to throw a little party on radio for the mooch, but uh he already he already left. Did not did not last very long. I have to say, last week I, I was as some of you picked up, and I could tell based on your messages, which some of you sent to me at facebook.com slash Buck Sexton, uh, which I hope you follow, by the way, as a Facebook page if you're not already. It's a great way to keep in touch with me and all things Freedom Hut, all things on uh, Buck Sexton with America Now here. But uh, I-, I was like, I don't know how they think this is going to be a good pick for White House Communications Director. I- I- this is not making a whole lot of, uh, of sense to me. Uh, and sure enough, uh, it did not last very long. And, and that I think we can take some some degree of, I don't know if solace is the right word. We could take some comfort from, you know, Scaramucci did not, in fact, last in a role that he was just not just unqualified for, but was a clearly very dubious choice for that position. So okay, I don't know. I don't know how he managed to get himself in that in that spot in the first place. Really, I know it's, he's tied to Trump. There's personal loyalty there. For me, though, it's just as a as a radio host and the opportunity to have a White House communications director who's who's all like, "Hey, I'm like you know Vinny from up in the Bronx." Yeah, I can say because I'm from New York City. So these are these are all my people. All these different New York and New York area accents. In fact, during my time at the NYPD, I remember more than one of my. Uh, wonderful NYPD colleagues telling me, you know, you kind of talk funny. And I was like, what does that even mean? I talk, why do I talk funny? Or maybe you talk funny. No, 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 you talk funny. Really? Well, one of us talks funny, I guess. It's all its all a question of perspective. But so I'm used to that New York area stuff, you know. But I was not used to a White House communications director who would make the... Re- I, it was tough because I wanted to give you the full... And I know this is... yet. I'm giving you yesterday's news today at some level. That's because I missed you all, and I was away from the hut. I want to talk to you about taxes. I want to talk to you about the DOJ now saying illegal aliens officially, and everyone's like, oh, my gosh. Uh, going to talk about uh, 
Trump as a class rebellion or Trumpism as a class rebellion, an illegal alien murderer who had been deported, I think he was a murderer, right, who had been deported 20 times, um, and maybe we'll get to State Department abandoning democracy promotion, Democrats on taxes. We're going to get to that in just a second. Uh, I've got a, oh, oh, the, the biggest threats in the world, as per CNN. What happens if they run out of almond milk when you're at the coffee shop getting a latte? Uh, you know, there's... I know, I make fun, but I actually like almond I actually drink almond milk sometimes. I mean, cow milk is way better, but... So we got a lot of different things that I wanted to get to, but I just am taking a I'm taking a, a late swing here. You know, the game may be over, but I'm still at the plate taking a swing at the whole Scaramucci thing because I just, um, yeah, I just was, part of me was looking forward to it. Part of me was also dreading it because if he had stayed in that role, he had shown, he had shown such poor judgment in the whatever it was, few days. I know it was 10 days total, but really it was only a few days of actually doing the job. Such poor judgment in that role that I, I don't know how the Trump, I don't know how people who are driving the locomotive of the Trump train were even going to be able to explain or defend this guy's commentary. Now, you can also take the position, which I know many do, they're like, well, Buck, it doesn't really matter. And in fact, maybe having somebody who completely uh, befuddles the media and is always on offense is something that Trump would want. However, if you're going to take that position, then you'd have to explain to me, well, what about the at best collateral damage? I think sometimes it was intentional damage to other people that are trying to work with Trump in that White House and maybe aren't in Trump's inner circle, but are trying to do their best by their by their the American people and, and the Republican Party. What about them? You know, do they just get left out, left on the side of the road because Scaramucci, hey, he's got his way of doing things. I'm going to stop. I know. I, my Scaramucci impression, it sounds kind of like I'm doing the Fonz. I don't know if any of you, well, actually, a lot of you probably remember Happy Days. Um, I, I remember watching it. I watched reruns of Happy Days. Um, but, you know, look, Scaramucci, he's got that, uh, it's a persona largely, right? I mean, I've talked to the guy. He went to Harvard Law School, and so he can turn, he can, with a, he can hit the switch of being incredibly uh, eloquent and and being a, quite a charmer, but he also, you know, he liked this persona, like the guy who was going to get it done, you know? That's, and I think Trump liked that, but then realized that you got to actually have some better judgment to be in that role. So, okay, I know I missed it. You know, I saw it again. No, the Monday that I'm out, I don't get to talk about the mooch. But here I am on Tuesday, still talking about the mooch. You got Sarah Huckabee Sanders saying that uh, General Kelly has the full confidence of the President of the United States here. John, on uh, General Kelly, you said yesterday that everybody's now reporting to the President through him. Is that an accurate characterization? Right, like I said, that uh, General Kelly has full authority so does that in the mean White nobody House. Nobody can wander into the White House on their own. Is he going to post? I don't think anybody can wander into office? the White House on their Excuse own without the Secret Oval Service stepping in. Can his daughter, can his son-in-law, can Steve Bannon wander into the Oval Office? And I don't talk think anybody just the... wanders into the Oval Office. Look, this is the the White House. He's the President of the United States of America, and uh, there are processes but it's and formal here normally, right? Uh, I mean, people talk to him. They don't wait to get approval to talk to him. Look, General Kelly is going to work with the entire team, as he's been doing over the last couple of days. He's done a great job of sitting down and talking to individuals about the needs that they have, the conversations, and putting a structure in place. There's nothing abnormal about that. 
You'll notice uh, this could be a point that I think a lot of folks out there, a lot of the uh, the commentary class, the chattering classes, the Twitterati. I feel like Twitter just exists for media people to to get nasty with each other all you know get to be saying mean things to each other all day. Uh, it's a, it's a small point, but I think it's actually a much bigger much bigger issue, and that is Democrats are obsessed. In, and I'm speaking in the broadest generalities here. I love when I get an email when I, I'm speaking about, you know, the the socialist tilt of many Democrats. No, you're saying all Democrats are socialists? No, of course not. But I, if you're going to hold me to absolutes all the time, or you're gonna you're gonna hold every word on a extemporaneous three hour long radio show to to absolute precision, then it, you know no one's going to be doing radio anymore, right? You have to speak at some level of generality. Democrats are in general. Obsessed with process. You'll notice that this ties into a mentality of control and controlling all of you, controlling the rest of the American people, that because the Democrat Party in this country is the party of the state, and because there is at least a much larger portion of the Democrat Party that believes that the uh, the state is is. In, lo- in local deus, in loco deus, right? Or it is in place of, you know, in loco parentis is when you're in place of parents. The state is in place of God for many real leftists. Uh, they fill that part of the of the brain that desires purpose instead of with religious belief, with a belief in climate change, which we'll get to later, how they think that's one of the biggest threats in the world. That's their, that creates their, uh, that that's a, a mythology that they, Use instead of getting into the uh, realities of religious faith and belief, they just think that it's science, right? They they go with the science as part of their their view of of all things, and and really it's a religious belief with the climate change stuff. But they believe in the state. They believe in control. They want to control everything around them and use the state as the mechanism to do that um, because they think the state can solve all problems. Well, if you believe that the state can solve all problems, you also then have to believe that there are processes in place because those processes are how the state does things. It can't be left to individual genius or ingenuity. It will have to be left to the mechanisms of a bureaucracy to solve all of your problems, right? So this is why Democrats believe in the Department of Education. If you just have the right processes in place— any government problem can be solved. If you just have the right organizational chart, if you if you hold meetings at the proper times, if you give the right titles to people and have the right mix of diversity in your employment ranks, and if you have the processes right of governing, forget about what the philosophy really is, because the philosophy is always just more control, more government, bigger government. But if you have the processes in place, you can solve any problem. And that's why in the Democrat mind, just as there's also, I, and I know this is making big, fun generalizations here, uh, there is a tendency to the emotional over the rational, right? And I'm really talking about progr- in the progressive mind, the modern progressive, how I feel determines reality. If I feel like I am female, even if I'm biologically male, I am in fact a, I'm in fact a woman is what than modern demo or modern progressive things, right? If I feel that your speech is offensive, bothersome, uh, creates a not just a hostile environment, but is a form, a quote, form of violence now, they'll actually say that. 
then then it is and you have to be silenced because of how of how i feel right and that's a difference in mindset and now we could get into all, all of the, the differences between what makes somebody a person of the left in this country versus what makes somebody a conservative, a person of the right. But Democrats like bureaucracy. They like process. They like to have these mechanisms in place that are a way of streamlining the—or I shouldn't say streamlining, but directing—that's a better word because it's not streamlined—directing the actions of the collective. That's what a bureaucracy does. Right? Because a conservative's philosophy is first and foremost based on the individual, we have a different view of so many things in life. And when you have a reporter sitting there asking Sarah Huckabee Sanders, well, you know, how do people get in to see the president? And what are the, you know, what, what are the ways that, who are the gatekeepers? And how do, we, how do we set these meetings? You can just see that there is a, an obsession with process and it's always a, a very fruitful place for criticism to be directed against an administration that is really defined by its ad hoc, you know, seat of the pants, aim from the hip nature. And this is, you're, this is never going to go away. And you know, for the journalists who are progressives as, as they approach this Trump administration with everything that it does, they will always find a way to criticize the process because they care much more about it than you and I do. I just want to know, do they get tax reform done? Is Trump signing an important bill? Is he is he making a, a powerful case to the American people about an issue that matters to you, that matters to me? Whereas Democrats are going to be, oh, you know, did he do it this way? I mean, the, the Democrat Party now, at least the, the progressive left wing of the Democrat Party, has become overrun by sanctimonious hall monitors. That's really what you've got. And there are a lot of them in the press corps. And that's why, in many ways, there's a cultural clash with this administration because Trump just, just does it the way he wants to do it. They hate that. That makes them uncomfortable. Because we should also note that if some person, whatever that person may be, in government, at whatever level, uh, has the authority and autonomy to make decisions and be accountable for those decisions— and does the right thing and goes around some of the now I'm not talking about checks and balances and constitutional processes. I mean, day to day processes, the bureaucratic expectations put in place for government employees. If somebody goes around that, if they go around the red tape, if they go around the, you know, the mother may I stuff all the time, you know, the buy your leave and they're successful, that just turns upside down the the worldview of so many of these journalists, these progressives, these people of the left. So I that that was a a digression I know from a much smaller issue, but you'll see it time and time again. Just just remember that I told you this when you see journalists and Democrats out there talking about whatever. They're obsessed with process and they really are a, a cult of annoying hall monitors. Um, I need to talk to you about taxes and a whole bunch of other issues, uh, which are the big battles right now. But I have to go into a break or else we're going to miss a spot here. So I'll be right back. Stay with me. Whenever you want to compare and contrast two very different things, if you want to go with uh, perhaps hackneyed but almost universally uh, remembered phrase, you could borrow from Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. You know, it, it, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times, right? This is how 
And and people will start with that line. They'll say a tale of two whatevers. This is if you've got an editorial that you need to write on a deadline, you know, just a tale of two somethings, and you can put whatever you want in there. Uh, right now we have so with all that. <laughs> once I've told you, you know, this is what everybody does, and I'm not writing it. So if when you come up with it on the fly on radio, that means that it's it's not original, but at least it's okay. It's not it's not me being intellectually uh, lazy. You got a tale of two medias right now, man. It is just incredible. You go on Fox News and you see the stories that are run and you have lockup leakers, Sessions preps crackdown as uh, Kelly brings order. That's the main headline right now. You got Comey replacement. Senate confirms uh, Ray as FBI director. Uh, you've got MS-13's most wanted. And you know, th- these are the stories. You go over to CNN and there's... There's crossover in terms of very broad topic, but the stories, this, and this is why I always say news is a narrative. The stories are entirely different. The, the ones that they are picking to highlight as the most important news of the day. Now, if, if we were in a media environment where it, it wasn't, I think for some outlets, do or die to prove one narrative right or one narrative wrong— you would see much more crossover between the stories. Right now on CNN, you have Trump weighed in on Sun's misleading claim. Uh, and then you have uh, Saliza writing that the G... Oh, no, that's sorry. That's something else. Um, you know, you look at this and, and the Trump's weighing in on this is, is the primary story over on CNN, right? That's, that's the main headline that they're running, or th- uh, running with right now. And you look at the rest, timeline of Donald Trump Jr.'s meeting revelations, Uh, White House comments on Donald Trump Jr.'s statement, Kushner, our team was too organized to collude with Russia. It's like, are these are these news organizations that are in the same country or no? Uh, Because in a sense, I guess you could argue they're not. You know, one is one is coastal elites and one is the rest of the country. Uh, And here's what Sarah, we got the press conference today where they're weighing in on this. Sarah Huckabee Sanders Uh, talked about this a bit, and here is what she said. The statement that Don Jr. issued is true. There's no inaccuracy in the statement. The president weighed in as any father would based on the limited information that he had. He's the president of the United States, and his son is having to speak to the media about this. Uh, I don't even know know how this is really a a story, how, how this is of interest to anyone other than as an excuse to run this as your primary headline. Right, you can always decide. You, you can take any story you want in the current media environment, and the, the Democrat outlets, which is all of them except for a few, do this constantly. Well, they'll be like, you know, we need a little more. We got a fever, and the only prescription is more Russia stories. Right, that's what they'll do. Uh, so they'll say, we're still asking, you know, asking questions about. There's not a new development in the Russia story, but. There's something else. Well, or, or there's a new development, like in this case, that's so minor as to be uh, who cares. Well, if if you're somebody who just can't get enough Russia stories, and there are people like that, I guess Donald Trump uh, weighing in is somehow interesting to you. But I find it very not interesting. And also, uh, I wanted to get into uh, what does matter to me, taxes and where that stands. Because remember, that's where we're supposed to move now. Let's talk about that. Um, so let's, uh, let's, let's actually take a moment here and talk about health care, because I know I said we're moving on 
to uh, to taxes. Um, I know we said we move on to taxes, uh, but there are some who are saying they're not going to do that. Uh, they're not going to do that. They're saying that they're going to stand now and fight. You've got Lindsey Graham, who is now putting forward a proposal, a health care proposal with Senator Bill Cassidy, that's mostly about giving flexibility to the states and trying to put limits on federal spending. <laughs> you know, they want to come at this health care thing again. Here we go. Here's what uh, Senator Graham had to say. 20 20- Listen to President Trump. We're going to get her done. Uh, we should be politically horsewhipped if we do not deliver for the American people. The best idea is still on the table. Hasn't even been tried. This is your idea. It's my idea because it's the best idea. <laughs> Tell us. It's a simple it's idea. It's the best idea because right. it's your idea. How about this idea? Instead of trying to redo Obamacare in Washington, why don't you turn to the governors who have done a great job doing a lot of things, including health care, and take all the money you would spend in Washington on health care, block grant it back to the states, and let them design health care systems closer to your family. This would empower state choice. It would empower consumers. If you don't like Obamacare, I don't know who you complain to. How much money would they get each, each uh, state? We're, we're, okay, so we're going to do away with the individual mandate. Okay, that's we're going to do ask. away with the employer mandate. Mm-hmm. We're going to repeal the medical device tax, but we're going to take the other taxes and we're going to block granite back. It's about $500 billion. Here we So another plan. How would this be able to get over that line that was drawn by Collins, Murkowski and McCain? I don't I don't see how that would happen. I don't see how we get there. So now I think this feels like it's an academic discussion. And maybe maybe I'm wrong, but I certainly wasn't wrong about how the Republicans in the last few weeks weren't actually going to get anything done. It feels like a discussion meant mostly for the cameras. Now, that doesn't mean that Lindsey Graham, Senator Graham and and Senator uh, Cassidy don't think that this plan is worthwhile. Maybe they think it would be an improvement on Obamacare. Keep in mind that Obamacare improving Obamacare is not the highest of of hurdles because you have exchanges that are in the so-called death spiral, which is to be which was to be expected all along. Younger, healthier people don't want to join up on these individual exchange plans uh, on these markets the same way that the older and sicker do. And so you just have a population paying premiums that needs more health care than what was estimated, which means that you're losing money if you're an insurance company. And the insurance company is saying, nope, we're going to get out of this. The way to solve that, of course, if you're a Democrat, is just pull out the Treasury checkbook and start sending start sending more cash to these exchanges. So that's one way. Uh, that's one way to do it. That's certainly what the Democrats want to do which just means that Obamacare is a constant negotiation over how much the federal government pays to maintain these exchanges, which are just an excuse for the federal government to be telling you how much you have to pay for your health care and what health care you get in the first place. Now, for those who are saying, well, Buck, it's just the individual market, it's not even really true. One of the big problems we have in this health care debate is that the government controls so much of our health care decision making already and is involved in such a huge proportion of overall health care expenditures through Medicare and Medicaid. I mean, Medicaid, what do you got like 70 million people on Medicaid right now? I mean, Medicaid is huge. It is an enormous part of 
the when you add Medicare and Medicaid together, they're an even bigger, huge portion of overall spending in this country by the government. So, you know, when you're, you're trying to figure out what to do about the individual market, I think it's important to keep in mind that the individual market's success would be the best case uh, would be the the best case for expansion of free market principles at work, right? So if you can make the individual market work and not have it be the current Obamacare cross-subsidy model, if you are able to, and I know that leaving it to the states is, is one of the ways to keep in mind, now that now it's just the state making healthcare decisions for you instead of the federal government, it's better, but it's not great. You know, you really don't want any government body saying, no, you can only buy the following plans with the following provisions in them, right? That that's we if you wanted the really pure free market plan or the purest there's no such thing as an entirely pure free market free market plan but if you wanted to get as close to that as possible you would just say that you can buy whatever insurance plan you want to buy right that would be that's it then from there it's it's just contract law this is what i'm insured against this is what i am not and you pay your premiums and it's based on uh you know, some degree of risk assessment for you as an individual. And people say, well, what about pre-existing conditions? Well, we could, it's not going to be perfect, of course, right? No system is going to be in, is going to be perfectly functioning, but we could establish federal funds to give to people with pre-existing conditions or establish federally subsidized exchanges. There, there you go. But you're making the concession about a moral obligation to give people health care only for a percentage of the population, a small percentage of it overall actually have true pre-existing conditions that are uninsurable. Um, and you already have a huge portion of the population on Medicaid. So that's giving of health care dollars to people based on need. So we're, you know, we're, we're looking at one very small piece of a much larger health care pie, and yet there's already all this, well, I shouldn't just say dissent. The Republicans can't get to first base on this, really. Sure, they pass something in the House. They can't pass anything yet in the Senate. And I wonder how many of those who will stand up now and make this case for a new plan, is, is this about is this about really getting something through in the Senate, or is this about individual senators wanting to grandstand or promote their own reelection prospects? I, I don't know. It's, it's tough to separate it out at this point. Because what was really needed was a bill to make it through the Senate last week, and it wouldn't have even been great. They could not even get skinny repeal through. Why would they be able to get through some other version of, uh, you know, skinny repeal? No, no, this time we're going to call it slender repeal. No, this time we're going to call it, you know, horizontally limited repeal. I mean, what do they really think they're going to be selling that's so different this time around that will get senators who are in states that like Obamacare, like the Medicaid expansion, like staying on your parents' insurance through 26 when you're a kid, although in your 20s you're no longer a kid. Now, these are all, I think, questions that need answers from the GOP right now, and I'm not sure we're going to get them. And you got Representative Blackburn out there saying, yeah, it's time for the time for the Senate to show some spine. Ooh, a congresswoman calling out her uh, Senate colleagues. People are disgusted. Over the weekend in my district, Steve, I have to tell you time and again, I would hear from people or see people out when I was working that would say, we are completely disgusted. And the Senate needs to show some spine. They need to come back to the table. They need to pass something and get into conference with us on this health care bill. I have constituents whose health care costs have tripled five, six, seven hundred percent.
Yeah. So do something about it. That's the government taking money out of their pockets, by the way, forcing them to buy a product they don't want that's not very good that gets more expensive every year. Imagine if you were told that you had to, that, that uh, you, let's say you're, you're renting your home. Uh, and imagine you're told that the government is going to determine the price for your home, and the next year the price for your home goes up, uh, you know, 30%. When you say, well, and not only that, but you can't get another home. That That's the only home you're allowed to get. And the government sets the price. The government's telling you what you have, and you have no choice. That that feels a bit coercive, doesn't it? That doesn't feel right. Well, it shouldn't. I mean, health care is, right now, for those in the individual market, that's happening. By the way... Well, we have in the employer in the uh, employer market or the um, employer provided healthcare market is just the shroud of costs. You don't really know what anything costs. You don't really a, sh- a shroud around it, I should say. You don't really know what would be um, what would make your healthcare better or worse because so much of this is just lost in the machinery of the healthcare companies dealing with the government mandates and restrictions and, and who knows what anything costs. Bernie in Virginia on WPTI. What's going on, Bernie? Hey, Buck. How are you, sir? I'm all right, sir. Thank you for calling in. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, you know, the one thing that I haven't heard brought up before is uh, about this health care reform is, you know, the Senate, the Congress, they all have their own private health care. I don't... They, they, they specifically exempted themselves from Obamacare, in fact. Exactly. And how how are you supposed to really feel like an urgent need to uh, come up with a better plan when you don't really have a uh, have a dog in the fight? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, look, if if you're going to be if you're a senator who's not in a deep red conservative state, you know that people like free stuff and the Medicaid expansion is for a lot of voters out there. And so you just and it's the federal government paying the money. And so why not? Right. That's that's a problem we ran into. And on your point about the Senate uh, or about Congress exempting itself. Uh, look, Lindsey Graham brought it up. He said it uh, just uh, earlier today. 20. President Trump should take our subsidies away from us as members of Congress if we don't deliver. Do you take if- it? Uh, I'm in TRICARE. Yeah, take their subsidies away from them. After 33 years in the military, I have health care through the military. But I will be punished. Punish me in any way you think is appropriate if I can't fix your health care. So we'll have to see. Uh, we'll have to see if, if that actually gets a, if there's a groundswell of this is, you know, this is just too much. They don't really care about what they say they care about. They've been lying to the American people. Republicans have been lying to the American people about what they would do for years. Now, we'll see. Look, Lindsey Graham, I, I give him some credit for being willing to go back and, and continue on this fight. But, you know, I don't know how much of this is real. I don't know how much of this is shadow boxing. You know, I, I don't know if they're really going to throw some punches and get this done or if this is just all for show. Show. Yeah, I, I think you're right, Bernie. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry to say it. I, th- I think you nailed it, my friend. Shields Hyde, thank I you for mean- calling in. Team, uh, we're going to hit a break here. We're gonna. I did say we talked taxes, and then we got a whole bunch of other topics that are a little less uh, in the – and we're at the forefront of the political cycle that I want to talk to you about. I liked our last caller. Um, I liked our last caller just just laying it down, you know. Yeah, no, they're not. They're not going to do it. Um, they're not going to. They're not going to get it done. I have to say, it's uh, it's pretty amazing. I, I, you know, 
is is faith in the Republicans is it like rooting for the home team at this point or is it just is it your friend who's going to disappoint you by bailing on plans at the last minute for the hundredth time? I that, those friends, you know, you, you can keep them in your life, but after a while, you only have yourself to blame, right? When somebody just doesn't doesn't respect your time. As I get older, this is how I pick my friends and those I, those I get to choose to be around. And more and more it has to do with not just are they are they amusing, are they entertaining, do I like being around them, but also do they respect my time? Do they show up, uh, you know, the, and now I'm sounding, uh, get off my lawn, I know, but uh, do they show up on time for things? Do they keep plans? Do they uh, make reasonable plans and, and uh, accommodations for what I've got to do on any given time, right? Because in work life, you got to just do what you got to do. So in your private life... You feel like you're able to make some of these distinctions. And, you know, when I was younger, it's much more, who's who's fun? Who's fun? Now it's, who's reliable? <laughs> That's Maybe this is what happens. You know, you, you get to the north side of 35 and you're like, who's reliable? Uh, but Republicans are not reliable. Or they're reliably false. They're reliably uh, can't be. They're reliable in that you can't count on them. And I, I know that there is a lot of uh, argument out there. You'll hear it. People say, well, it was only a few it was only a few Republicans that defected from the Obamacare appeal. You can't blame everybody for what John McCain, Collins and Murkowski did. Well, OK, but it feels like there'll always be a few Republicans. How, how many defections were there in the Congress from Obamacare? So why is it the Democrats can all get on the same page, but Republicans can't? What does, what does that tell us about the future of the party? What does that tell us about whether or not they're really conservatives who believe in these conservative principles and all the things that they espouse when it's time to run for reelection and they want to get money and they want to have the war chest necessary to keep their perks and their privileged positions down in D.C.? Is it, is it really all just for show? Uh, we will, I, I don't know, and I, I find, ta- <laughs> this, this is something that first, first dates do's and first date do's and don'ts from Buck. Don't lead off with things like, I find tax reform fascinating, but that sound, does sound like something I might bring up. Uh, cause I, I do think tax reform is fascinating because taxes are the area of, um, l- taxes are the area of legislation where, the government really has the, has the greatest leeway to shape, mold, intrude, dictate, not just in the economy, but in all kinds of day-to-day activities, all, all sorts of things. Uh, taxes are an excuse to pick winners and losers. Taxes are a way of favoring donors over the people. Taxes are a way of uh, putting certain even lifestyle choices and uh, decision-making for your family Decision even to have a family, all these things, right? Taxes are a reflection of government policy at all these different levels. And we need, when we're talking about a 70,000 plus, uh, plus, pardon me, 70,000 plus page tax code to discuss simplification as just a few brackets here or there that we will change is really nonsense. It's just kicking, it's just kicking at a, kicking out a beach full of sand and saying that you're you're shifting the earth, right? You're not doing anything worthwhile. Uh, and I worry that that's where we may end up once again with Republicans. They might they might get the corporate tax rate change because corporations in the Republican Party 
do have a lot of sway. They do in the Democrats, too. Big business and big government love each other. So with the Democrat Party, you've got all kinds of big business interests at work, too. But Republicans and the, the donor class, you know, the, the capitalists and mega capitalists on the right have a lot of sway. And so I think that there will be a real push for a corporate tax reform. But I think many of you listening think to yourselves whenever we discuss this, uh, why do I pay so much in taxes exactly? What am I What am I getting for this? And do I trust the government to be a good steward of the money that is paid to it? Democrats drew a, uh, well, they had a discussion today, and this was reported on in the Wall Street Journal, uh, of what they will and will not go along with. Now, through reconciliation, you can do, because it's a budgetary issue, you can do a lot in terms of tax reform. And if Republicans aren't willing to go to the mat on this, well, what are they? Uh, and at what point do we start saying that it's it's now impossible for conservatives to win major victories in Congress, given the current political climate? I, I, I'm not there yet, but I start to think that we're getting closer all the time to it. Because we all like our goodies. Even Republicans like goodies. Republicans like to give out, quote, free stuff to people. Of course, it's not free, but by the time we figure that out... They've already been reelected and nobody's the wiser, right? Um, much more coming. Back in a few. Stay with me. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Our team lines are lit up here in the Freedom Hub. We've got uh, Bradley in Arizona on KFYI. What's going on, Bradley? Buck, uh, I have, I guess, one statement, two questions. Uh, first statement. And you said it, and I don't remember how many weeks or months ago, and it was great. It was uh, people love Santa Claus and they hate the Grinch. And it was about the goodies and freebies and things that our elected officials tend to give us. And, and I can't remember how you said it, but it was very eloquent and it was very to the point at where we are in our political landscape. Thank you. The, and that is what I said. Yeah. Uh, so, so, yes, that is the line. People love Santa Claus. They hate the Grinch. It was great. Uh, the two questions that I had, one's a joke and one's for real, uh, did all of the elected officials, did they all go to Juilliard? Did, did John McCain take acting classes from Lee Strasberg? Because when he was campaigning here in Arizona, it was Obamacare is bad and I'm going to repeal it and uh, with so much heart and so much conviction. And gosh, I believed it. And yet, you know, the final vote, he uh, it came up short, and he decided, no, 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 it's it's all an acting job. So I was just curious if they got, like, a Senate discount to go to the Lee Strasberg School of, of Acting. That's the ha-ha. <laughs> I, I like that you add in your own ha-ha there, your own laugh track. Go ahead. Well, I tried. The real question is, where do we go from here? Is health care... Are we going to move off of health care, and are we going to move on to something else? Because clearly we are not getting we the people that elected John McCain or Lisa Murkowski or whomever, we're not getting what we wanted from them from the health care standpoint. What's the next fight? What's the next battle on the horizon to, to try and fix? Or is this going to be more acting class? You know, I, I think that the, that they're saying it's taxes, but now there are some senators who are realizing that the long-term ramifications politically uh, to the Republican Party 
of the Senate, of having a majority in the Senate and being unable to pass a bill despite Republicans, as you point out. And by the way, I, I played, you might have heard it if you're listening to the show last week, as hopefully y- you were, Bradley. Uh, John McCain was, was, this was a main part of his reelection campaign, you know? And I remember, you know, build the dang fence. And I also remember, you know, repeal and replace Obamacare, you know? This is what he was saying. And then he comes back here. I don't know. My job at Kane's not bad. I, I th- then he comes back here, and sure enough, he is the necessary vote. And remember, it was for skinny—it wasn't even for full repeal, right? It was for skinny repeal. Wouldn't do it. Wouldn't do it. And, and, and that was one of the key reasons why I foolishly—I'd I, say wasted my vote on him, because if Kelly Ward, who was the more conservative candidate— was you know hold, held a lot less sway. I mean, if, if she were in his place, I think we'd be looking at at uh, a totally different Senate, at least representation from Arizona. I, if if the health care problem, if Obamacare is, and Bradley Shields, and thank you for calling in, great call. If Obamacare is as terrible as they have been saying it is for for many years now, you know the. One of the earliest major political fights uh, that I spent a lot of time on in my media career, of course, was over was over Obamacare. I mean, I joined. Uh, it was already law by the time I uh, had left the world of uh, counterterrorism work and and had become a, a media person or whatever I would call myself. But Obamacare, and certainly in the fight between Mitt Romney and Barack Obama for the 2012 presidency, it was an enormously important issue, as well as in the rise of the uh, Tea Party and then in the wave of electoral victories for a whole new crop, a whole new crew of conservative candidates in the the House and in the Senate. And we were told that it was terrible. We were told that Obamacare was deeply destructive, that it was unconstitutional. I remember this. You remember it, too. 5-4 the Supreme Court. By the, the breadth of a hair, it, it stayed as the law. And part of it was knocked down. And it is an interesting twist of fate that the part of it that was knocked down, the mandatory make you an offer you can't refuse, like the mooch. Uh, the mandatory—sorry, I couldn't help—I know, I know, I couldn't help. Uh, the mandatory expansion of Medicaid in all states would have meant that this, this wouldn't even be a real discussion, getting rid of Obamacare. It'd be a, it's a joke. You would have to wait for— health care to completely crater for the individual exchanges to crater and for the overall health care market to suffer really serious uh, shortfalls because of this government. And, and then you would just have louder cry for single payer. It's not as though failures, you know, this is like whenever the government fails to do something, the answer the government gives you is we didn't have enough resources. Another way of saying this is we didn't have enough money. So we need more of your money. Hey, we failed, give, but we failed because you didn't give us enough money. Only the government can play that game and plays it all the time and wins. Anyone else comes up to you, right? If someone says, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build an addition to your house and it's going to cost $1,000, okay, which obviously would not be very – this would be like an addition to my house in New York City, you know, all, all like 20 square feet of it. But if somebody came to you and said, you know, I'm going to build an addition to your house, it's going to cost you twenty grand, And you say, okay, great. And they come back to you, and all of a sudden you're like, you've you've basically hammered together a couple of two by fours, and and put up a put up a bird bath, and you're telling me this is the addition to my house. And they say, well, you know, you didn't give me enough money. You need to give me more money. You'd say, well, this is a problem because 
you failed. And they say, well, no, you just got to give me more money. That's what the government. The answer with government is, well, yeah, you have to. Get, we're going to take more of your money. That's why it didn't work. And with single payer, they're going to pretend that they will give you more. But in reality, they're going to take much, much more in the form of taxation. That's this is how this happens. And they hope that because it's boring and it's confusing and it's drawn out and it's uh, mis- they mislead you and the Democrats are lying about it and they're and the Republicans are lying about it, too. Then there won't be enough of a political groundswell to really address the problem as it is and to fix it. They don't want to fix it. They want it to get worse because the solution getting worse is not, OK, we were wrong. The solution that Obamacare will come up with as it continues to be bad is more spending and eventually all spending from the government, i.e. single payer, i.e. we are a Western European country and there's no America to be the economic engine of the free world. Okay, that's that's what we're all heading for. It's not not fun stuff. Uh, What do I think the next Republican? I mean, to our caller's question, what's the next Republican fight or what are they going to do after this? I I, I don't know because I don't think they really know. There's not a party unity right now that the Democrats have us beat when it comes to collective action. Democrats are better at it. They are collectivists and they like to move as a unit. They are a mob that can be directed at one house to burn it down. Republicans are like, well, okay, now it's our turn. I don't know. You want to burn it down? Well, who's going to pay for the kerosene? Well, who's going to, you know, a lot of back and forth, not a lot of worthwhile action. If Obamacare was, and this was the point I was trying to get at before, but as you can see, I missed you. I have too much to say. I feel like we're, I feel like I'm catching up with old friends. I'm gone one day from the hut and it's like, I've been lost at sea for months. Uh, a little little melodramatic, I know, but if Obamacare was as bad as they said it was, if it's as unconstitutional as they said it was, then every Republican and in, by the way, they all they all ran on on repeal. And in fact, I think it was Murkowski, maybe it was Collins, voted in favor of a much more sweeping repeal back when they couldn't get it through the Senate. So they were just liars. But if it was as bad as they said it was, they would they would be okay with dramatic with drastic action to get rid of it and to change it right if if somebody gets wheeled into an emergency room and they're you know they're bleeding out from a wound and everyone's saying oh my gosh the, the patient's going to die unless we do. does the doctor get sent there like well i'm a I'm a little worried, you know, if, if if we go in there with the forceps and the, the, there could be a risk of secondary infection in a few days. That's, by the way, I should, that, that's really what John McCain and Murkowski and Collins were saying. Well, with Murkowski and Collins, it was that they just wanted more They wanted the Medicaid money, right? But with John McCain, he's saying that the replacement bill wasn't good enough. Well, we, we, we have to... We have to do something or else we do nothing, right? Or, or else the, the day is lost. So when you have a patient that gets to, to continue to, to, to play out this analogy all the way, when you have a patient that gets wheeled in and it's a dire circumstance, which is what they all said, which is what the Senate Republicans and uh, House Republicans said for years, they should say, you know what, that's it. We're going in there. We're doing whatever we have to do. We're going we're gonna to address this because time is not on our side and dramatic action is needed. Drastic action is needed to deal with a major problem. Not, oh, it has to be perfect, so we can't do anything because if it's not perfect, that's going to be really bad. No, no, no. That is not acceptable. Demo- Look what Democrats did. Were, were they waiting around? Do you think Nancy Pelosi was losing sleep at night because 
she was passing a bill that was imperfect? No, of course. You know, they have to pass it to see what's in it. I mean, you know. By the way, she was right about that, which is kind of a funny irony of the whole situation because they didn't really know what was in it because they changed what was in it after they passed it. But that's how they play the game. That's how that's how they do things. Seize power first, right? For those of you who are Game of Thrones fans, you know, seize the Iron Throne and then figure out how you're going to rule. With Republicans, it's, well, you know, I don't know. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe we should have another another round of deliberations about, you know, who's going to be hand of the king and who's going to be on the high council and who's going to, and I don't know who's going to seize the Iron Throne. And maybe we should. And the other side saying, just put us in power again. We'll fix all your problems. That becomes, when you have one side that dithers and the other side that does, the side that does will eventually win. And right now, the side that does, that's the Democrats. Richard, West Virginia, want to get you in before we go to break. What's up, sir? You're on WWVA. Oh, yeah, sure I am. What I wanted to ask about Democrats versus Republicans, well, I just want to make this one quick comment, because earlier you were talking about uh, uh, somebody didn't think you were for New York. Cause you, you, To me, you don't sound like somebody from New York. I mean, I agree that you are. You wouldn't lie about it. But you don't say things like, you talk just like me. You don't say, like, T-A-L-K, and New Yorkers, they'll say, pork. And like, coffee, they say, coffee. And you don't do any of that, so... <laughs> Well, you know, if you really want to know, it's because New York, New York City, which has eight million people, has very has regional dialects even within the city. So different boroughs have different speech patterns and, and accents. And in fact, what are often thought of as New York accents are, especially these days, predominantly found in New Jersey and Long Island, just outside just outside of city limits. That's that's where you get so you know more about New York accents than you ever wanted to know. But people in Manhattan sound like me. Okay, I know my uncle's from uh, Mount Vernon, and he 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 says I want you to meet your aunt Sheila, and I said that's the Bronx. Mount it? Vernon's the Bronx. How do you spell Sheila? Uh, I didn't know. I thought it was S H E I L A, and he just says Sheila. They don't know any different. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask about the Democrats versus Republicans you were talking about. I'm a registered Democrat, have been for years. Years and years, because I was told the Democrats are for the working people, Republicans are for big government. Yet I voted for uh, President Trump because uh, he just he seems to be for the working people. What I want to find out is that it all inclusive of, that if you're a Democrat, you have certain one, two, three, four, five policies you believe in. Republicans do that. That you can just count if you're a Democrat, you're going to be this way, and a Republicans the other way. Or does it depend on the person? Wait, I'm, I'm sorry. Give me the last part of the question again. Does it depend on the individual? Just because they happen to be a Democrat, does that mean they always are going to believe in the Democratic? I got to find. I got to look that up and see what actually a Democrat stands for. And well, I know. I, I think you're asking very important. This is a really fundamental question right now, Richard. Which is, what does it mean to be a Republican? Uh, what does the Republican Party exist for and what does it stand for? When the Republican Party does not defund Planned Parenthood, when the Republican Party does not repeal Obamacare, when the Republican Party does not secure the border, when the Republican Party seeks to assist other countries in their fights in their own border disputes before handling our border issues and national security associated along with that, what does the Republican Party stand for? The answer is, you know, who knows? Your guess is as good as mine, because when it matters, they can have whatever they want as their platform. They can give all the speeches in the world. But when it matters, when it comes to taking action, Republicans cannot get it. This Congress cannot get it together. 
And this is why I think this is one of the reasons people wanted Trump, because they wanted disruption of this, because they knew. A lot of Trump voters, I think, sitting at home right now listening to this, know that they voted for Trump because they expected the Republican Party to prevaricate and lie and be deceitful in this way, even after they got a majority. So they figure at least we get Trump in there, it'll be different. At least he'll mix things up, because if we had some GOP approved candidate at the top of this whole pyramid that is the United States federal government, then we'd have no chance of getting away from what we've got right now. The business as usual, the status quo, and that's where we are. Richard Shields, Simon, thank you for calling in. You see, one of the great things about uh, social media when you're a radio host is that your your team, your family, your listeners uh, can keep you on the straight and narrow, make sure you don't uh, mess up, or, or they can at least fact-check you in real time. I said before, in place of God, uh, and it was a play on in loco parentis, and for Democrats, it's, well, in loco parentis is in place of parents, but then, and schools have had to deal with that, whether universities are in loco parentis. But I said uh, in, in loco deus, it's in loco dei, that's correct, I was, I was wrong. My eighth grade uh, Latin instructor, Mr. McLaughlin, would be very, very... Uh, disappointed in me. It's been a long time since I have studied the Latin. I did for years in, in grammar school. It used to be required in my high school. I think Latin and Greek were required until about the 80s or maybe the 70s. And they also used to get rid of a big portion of the class because it was a scholarship school after the first year. So if you were a freshman and you didn't end up, I think, in the top half of the class, you, you they found another school for you to go to and your scholarship was gone. That was until I think the 50s or the 60s. Uh, that would never fly anymore, right? Now we're all in a, in a kinder, gentler, uh, everybody gets a trophy world. Well, not everybody gets a trophy because not everybody gets to go to a scholarship school that pays for your education. But anyway, uh, Fareed Zakaria said something interesting over the weekend, which was, uh, I shouldn't say surprise, but he said something interesting. Let's hear it. The other factor is, is culture, a real sense of cultural alienation that an older white non-college educated um, uh, Americans have the sense that their country is changing because uh, of immigrants, because maybe blacks are getting rising up to a kind of central place in society because of, uh, you know, gays being accorded equal rights, because of, frankly, a lot of working women. You know, everybody is sort of muscling in on a territory that, if you think about it, uh, the white working ma man had. But the, and the final one is class, social class. We talk about it a lot, but... The election of Donald Trump is really a kind of class rebellion against people like us, you know, educated professionals who live in cities, who have, you know, cosmopolitan views about a lot of things. And I think there's a whole part of America that is sick and tired of being told what to do by this, you know, uh, overeducated professional elite that Hillary Clinton in many ways perfectly yeah. represented. And that's why they're sticking with there's There's a lot of... A lot of truth and a lot of false, a lot of truth and a lot of wrong in what he said. I think it was so interesting. First of all, people were not voting for Trump because of the rise of blacks and gays, as he says. When you talk about the culture, when we talk about the culture war and a cultural rebellion, uh, the Trump wave had to do with the rejection primarily of Illegal immigrants, people in the country in violation of law, laws that Democrats did not change, by the way, when they could have under the Obama administration. They could have tried to make the country open borders. They did not. 
but to say it's about blacks and gays is, is really he, he's trying to get to a central truth and he's surrounding it with lies because of the way that he views things or not lies, but um, poor assessments. Uh, shoddy analysis. It is a class rebellion. It's a class rebellion against people like Fareed Zakaria and as he says, Hillary Clinton. But it's not because they're so elite and so fantastic and so educated and so much better than all the rest of the country. It's because those people think they are. Hillary Clinton thinks she is, but she is not. It's because we see through the facade. It's because we understand that the emperor of the coastal elites, the people like Hillary Clinton, have no clothes. So to speak. So to speak. Oh, my gosh. You know what I mean? People understand this. They know that fancy degrees for people like Hillary Clinton and power and prestige and privilege are all about connections and conniving, not about talent and ability. And that's part of the Trump wave rejection of these so-called elite jerks. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. We've got a four-star general taking command of the White House. This is a person who literally went and took over Fallujah, right? This guy is a no-joke kind of, no-games no kind of guy. Uh, he's going to walk into that staff. He's going to say, everybody, whether you are the chief strategist or you're the chief cook and bottle washer, you now report to me. And my, my leadership style, my management style is, you'll still have access to the president, is my guess. I haven't spoken sure. to General Kelly. But I want to understand what's going on. And if there are going to be policies and procedures that don't affect the American people, I want to be aware of it. I want to have the opportunity to weigh in on those if that's what I want to do. So as the chief of staff, he's going to oversee that staff. I don't think he's going to look to change Donald Trump because that would be a mistake. There you had Corey Lewandowski, former senior Trump campaign manager, or Trump's campaign manager formerly, uh, weighing in on the change-up in the White House of a general taking over for Scaramucci. What can we take away from all of this? We got Michael Goodwin on the line. He's a New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor. Latest piece up on NewYorkPost.com. Trump is finally getting his White House in order. Michael, great to have you back. Thanks, Buck. Okay, I mean, I got to say, Michael, the Scaramucci thing, I was, I was looking around and I was like, come on, guys, come on. Uh, how did we get there and why is now better? Well, look, I, I think the good news in all of this is that Trump was searching for solutions. He wasn't going to stand pat. He didn't have a good White House operation. Uh, publicly, he put the best face on it, but he had to know the leaks were out of control, the backbiting. Um, he said several times that, you know, he talked about firing people, and there was all, these, all this rumor, nonstop rumor of him going to make changes. But really, he didn't make any changes for months. And so finally, he brings in Scaramucci and Spicer leaves and, and Priebus. Michael, I don't like to interrupt guests, and I certainly don't interrupt you on this point, but why did you bring in Scaramucci? What was the thinking here? I think Scaramucci convinced Trump to bring him in. Uh, I think they talked a lot. I mean, Trump has been searching. I think he talks to a lot of people out of the White House, and a lot of people have his ear. I think Scaramucci had his ear. For whatever reason, how he got it, I don't know. Uh, don't forget, he supported Trump in the campaign toward the end, and Trump was going to bring him in, and Priebus blocked him. Uh, but he, Scaramucci never gave up, and, and Trump, uh, looking for answers, uh, turned to people like that. I, I, that's my understanding. But look, I think that Scaramucci made everything worse. And in a way, he, cle he cleared the way for Kelly, 
who I think uh, is a terrific choice. And I think that if Kelly, if Trump lets Kelly do his job, you will have a much better, more efficient White House. I, I believe the leaks will stop. And I believe that uh, the president will stay on message more. Now, you're right. Uh, he's not going to change Donald Trump. But I think, that the, I think the president will change himself if he sees an advantage in it. So you think that this is this is finally now a a different a, a different White House structure that's in place for the day to day operations of the West Wing. You you think that this will this will change things? I I believe there's a very good chance it will. I wouldn't I wouldn't bet my farm on it, but uh, I think that uh, Trump wants to succeed. I mean, Buck, it's something you and I have talked about before. His towering ego, as everybody in politics or in business. They want to succeed, and if you're failing the way you're doing it, that, that is an incentive to change. I think Donald Trump recognizes that he's got a lot of problems, that he, the Republican Party is fracturing around him, uh, and that he wasn't able to get Obamacare repeal through Congress. Uh, he just There is a sense of stall, a sense that uh, things need to be done differently. And Kelly, I think, is a dramatic choice, a general for the White House. Um, and I think to, to have cleared out the White House in that way was a commitment, a sign of a commitment from the president that we have to do things differently. Now, does he, does he accept his own responsibility to, for this? We've never seen him admit that publicly, but I think within this there is a tacit admission that everybody has to be different, and I think that would include him. We're speaking to Michael Goodwin. He's a New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor. Uh, Michael, I had a caller before ask, I think, a very a very important, very astute question. What now? What do the Republicans turn to now? Not so much Donald Trump specifically, but what does is, what is the Republican Congress now look to? you got Lindsey Graham. Uh, making some noise about how they got to get back to the health care debate. I, I feel like there's already frustration and fatigue that is overtaking any other uh, any other feelings on the health care debate right now. And we've been ta- we've been told that taxes could be next. Where do you think this goes or what do you think should be the next choice for Republicans in terms of uh, agenda items? Look, I, I, I think they've got to get something big done this year. And I think that if they go back to health care and aren't able to do it, then they'll get nothing done because it's already a short year now. So I, I think at this point, moving onward to taxes makes the most sense. Uh, if the Republicans want to, among themselves, quietly try to round up 50, 51 votes for some form of health care, more power to them. But I think for the to waste floor time, to waste uh, this, the majority leader's time, to waste the president's time uh, with nothing to show for it at the end of it, I think would be a double disaster. I think they've got to move forward from here, get taxes done. Uh, health care, look, they didn't have any answers to health care. They, they had bills, but they didn't have any solutions to the huge problems of American health care. I think it's better that with taxes it can be a cleaner process. I think that there should be more Republican uh, unanimous feeling on it. And I think even some Democrats might want to go along with certain aspects of it. So I think there's 
room there for something to get done and to get done this year. I think that's the key, is getting something big done this year. How do you think it plays out if the approach of the administration and the Republican Party together becomes, you know what, we are just going to let Obamacare fail, and in fact, maybe we'll even pull back some of the federal dollars that are being used to prop up parts of the program? Do you, do you think that that is uh, from a from a purely political perspective, right? Leaving out whether it's a good idea, whether it's an ethical idea, just from the what happens in the midterms side of things, how do you think that would play out? Not well. I think that if you look callous, if if people are suffering and you say, well, let's let the Democrats solve it, when you have been elected to solve it, uh, I think that's that will not work politically. I want to say one more thing too, Buck, about the Republican Party and the president. I think there's a real fracturing going on here. It's over the special counsel Mueller's investigation. Uh, Trump has talked about uh, firing him, and uh, Lindsey Graham, among others, says holy hell will break loose. There's talk about there's a whole Sessions issue whether the president would fire Sessions. Chuck Grassley and others have said, well, we, we're not going to confirm another attorney general. So I think that there are real, real fissures opening between Trump and various leaders in the Republican Senate, especially and with a very narrow majority. I think this is a big problem going forward. So I think the president really has to, to bring the party together. I mean, he complained the other day that they're not protecting him. His son, Eric, was on uh, with Sean Hannity last night complaining about Republicans not lining up behind his father. This is a two-way street. And I think, yes, he's the president, but uh, uh, he, he's not really being a leader of the Republican Party. And I think he's caught midway, too. I think he's trying to decide whether he wants to try to woo the Republicans or run against them. Uh, do, you, do you think it would be it would be it would be cataclysmic, uh, politically speaking, for Trump to fire Mueller? Uh, I do. Yes, I do. I believe that uh, there, he would have very little support in the Republican Senate for that. Uh, I think there would be lawsuits over it, which he would probably lose, unless there's some clear cause, unless Mueller has done something so wrong uh, that it warrants it. I think it's a very dicey move. And I think the president has wanted to do it and been talked out of it. Uh, we'll see if he goes down that road again. But I think I think it would really blow the lid off the White House. And do you feel the same way about a possible Jeff Sessions firing? Look, I suggested seven weeks ago that the president fire Jeff Sessions. And it was because of the recusal the president was naked uh, in front of Mueller. Mueller, there's nobody to oversee Mueller effectively, nobody from the administration. And I think that was a mistake. I think Sessions owed the president a clear explanation about his plans to recuse himself. Uh, but that didn't happen, and now I think it's too late. I think, again, the Republicans in the Senate have said we're not going to confirm anybody else. They've, many of them have aligned themselves with Sessions. They like him. He's a former colleague. They think Trump has been unfair to him. Uh, so I think, I think that path is closed. So he cannot fire Sessions. He cannot fire Mueller, which I think is the big danger for him. And that's why I think when these senators peel off for one reason or another – anger over Sessions, anger over Mueller, uh, anger over Obamacare. He's in real danger because he doesn't have much of a margin to get anything done. If, if, look, I think John McCain uh, took his revenge on Donald Trump with the Obamacare vote. 
That's how thin this margin is. And I think that the president just can't afford to have any more fights with Republicans in the Senate. Trump is finally getting his White House in order. That is the latest from Michael Goodwin. You can read it up on NewYorkPost.com and also look for him on Fox News. Michael, great to have you. Thanks for joining. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Buck. Team phones are open, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. We will be right back. I just wanted to return for a moment to that uh, soundbite I played before where uh, Fareed Zakaria was analyzing the state of of Trumpism uh, and Trump as the leader of the Republican Party and was saying that there's anxiety and fear among Trump voters uh, from uh, resulting from the the rise of blacks and and uh, and gays in society, which is is of course meant to be a um, that, that's meant to be a slander against Trump supporters, right? That that there's bigotry and hatred at the core of the rise of Trumpism in, in America, and of course that in, in a sense, Fareed Zakaria really exemplified why Trump supporters do resent the media, the coastal elites, because if nothing else, they constantly misrepresent people who they don't consider to be a a part of their class. Hence why you get a class rebellion of sorts against those individuals, right? Because if you don't agree with someone like Fareed Zakaria, who is really a a quintessential multilateralist, internationalist, cosmopolitanist, look at me with my fancy degrees, degrees which I should note are, are often now especially in the humanities and things like international relations and any uh, any of the soft sciences, political science, it's just social signaling. You get into all these different programs. I could have gone to any international relations program I wanted to. I didn't go because I was like, I'd learn on my own. I was working for the CIA. What, what I'm going I'm to learn more by sitting in a, in a classroom where I have, anyway, maybe if it was some specialized program, but just a general IR degree. But it's really so that when you're at cocktail parties, you can feel fancy. That's why you get a master's degree in any number of these fields. Uh, but that's so I just think it's interesting. He provided insights accidentally by trying to analyze why people vote for Trump. You know, this is the, the shorthand for this on social media, Twitter, Facebook. You'll see is this is how you got Trump. Fareed Zakaria saying that it's because blacks and gays are doing well in America. That's what caused Trump. No, his misdiagnosis of that's how you got Trump is how you got Trump. If you want to look at what does uh, concern Trump voters, you look at the situation of, for example, um, 22% of the federal prison population, according to the Washington Times, uh, are immigrants. And when you look at the percentage of that that are illegal immigrants, they don't even... Well, here's what the Washington Times says. A stunning 22% of the federal prison population um, is comprised of immigrants who have either already been deemed to be in the country illegally or who the government is looking to put in deportation proceedings. President Trump requested, requested the numbers as part of his initial immigration executive orders. We've got a country now that says that it cares about borders, a country that pretends to be all about rule of law and, you know, just make a few minor errors on your on your tax returns and, and see how much good see how much good faith gets you in our current legal climate as a citizen but keep in mind that if you're an illegal any number of violations of law will be forgiven and, and even excused 
because of the political climate right now. Uh, and that you have 22% of the federal prison population are people that came to this country, many of them illegally, tells us just that the, the government is failing us. And that annoys Trump supporters. Right? It should annoy everybody in this country, but it definitely annoys Trump supporters. And, you know, you want to analyze how we got to this point, then th this is, I think, a much more accurate place to start, that you have the importation, because it favors Democrat identity politics, the importation of people from around the world without any specific regard as a policy matter to the economics of bringing them here, the legality of what they will do when they are here, and making excuses for them coming here illegally all along the way. It, it's just maddening. It's maddening. It, you know, at a, in a more localized level here in New York City, now I mentioned this to you before, there are now prosecutors. And by the way, once the prosecutor's offices are politicized, just you know liberty is on a is on a fast track to extinction right once you have prosecutors that think that they are or that are openly acting as uh, ideological partisans and not as guardians of the law and of justice first and foremost you're in a very dangerous place here in the here in new york city the uh, police department the NYPD which i formerly worked for is getting pressure from the, our mayor Bill de Blasio, or Kaiser Wilhelm, hello, because his name is Foreign Wilhelm. It's not just Bill de Blasio. That sounds better for the running in the office, but Kaiser Wilhelm would be very scary. So, so he had to change this because he wants to be, you know, like, hey, like Bill de Blasio, you have a beer with him. Kaiser Wilhelm, you have like Bratwurst and Lederhosen. It's very different. So de Blasio, hey, de Blasio, de Blasio and a mooch. Uh, de Blasio says that he doesn't want the NYPD to arrest naked panhandlers because many of them are illegal immigrants, and if they arrest them and they process them, then there might be there might be issues with immigrations and customs enforcement and sanctuary city laws. So de Blasio doesn't just defend publicly the sanctuary city, uh, sanctuary city status of New York City, but he also now is telling the police— to change their actions with regard to lawbreaking because lawbreakers, in some cases, are illegal immigrants, and he doesn't want illegal immigrants to face deportation for their lawbreaking. You want to know, know how you got Trump? This is how you got Trump. Freed Zakaria, pay attention. This, this is how you get Trump. Cliff in North Carolina on the iHeart app. What's up, Cliff? we got about a minute. Hey, Buck. Um I've said this once before. If Trump wants to kill Obamacare, let it stand on its own feet. In other words, let him rescind every single bypass that President Obama gave that thing so that it has to stand on its own feet. And you'll see how many people go crazy over that. Uh, but then the Republicans get the Republicans will get blamed. And I, I know and you know, Cliff, that that's not fair, but that may be the reality. And that may mean the Democrats take back control of the Senate. And the House. Well, you know, it goes right back to everything else. Are we going to do things for revenge? Are we going to do things because we're going to get blamed? Are we going to do something that's good for the country? Hey, yeah, I mean, I hear you. Drastic, drastic action. Take action, Republicans, instead of dithering. That's what they've been doing. Cliff Shields High team will be right back with more. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. 
So there's this uh, this CNN poll about the biggest threats all over all over the world, and and sure enough, you have uh, you have all. Oh, here we go. ISIS and climate change top world threat list. People across the world see the terror group ISIS and climate change as the two biggest threats to global security, according to an international survey by Pew Research Center. Cyber attacks and the health of the international economy follow closely, while people in one-third of the 38 countries surveyed said the power and influence of the U.S., Russia, or China is a major concern. Across Europe, 31% said U.S. powered influence is a major threat in 2017. Uh, it's just—it's amazing when you you go through this, you look at this, and uh, you get some snapshot, I guess, of of regional perception. Look, no surprise, right? The, if you're not Russia, but you're a neighbor of Russia's, you're worried about Russia. If you're not China, but you're a near neighbor of China's, you're worried about China. That makes sense, and that's probably wise. Uh, it is wise, but. That you have climate change high up on the threat list here. This is not a, uh, a a difference of opinion problem. This is a difference of resources and long-term strategic intent and and strategic posturing of important countries, allies of ours all over the world, and, and the Democratic Party in our own country. That climate change is considered such a threat means that resources and time are spent by governments tackling this when they should be dealing with much more pressing issues. I mean, I I would offer to you right now uh, that there are any number of public health crises that should be way in front of climate change as as a as a topic for or as as an area for national security uh, resources as an area for for government resources of any kind. I mean that anybody could even speak in the same breath about well, you know the opioid crisis is bad, but you know climate change is really going to do us all in in the end. So it's madness. I mean it is it is a form of insanity. It's highbrow crazy, right? It's people that think that what they're saying is somehow not just normal or rational, but is a mark of superior intellect that's what's really crazy here that's what's just how do you even describe it climate change as a global national security threat but you know you had president obama giving speeches i think what was a speech at the coast guard academy you know gotta deal with the threat of climate change climate change is gonna be really bad and you're gonna handle so you're gonna gonna have to do this and you're gonna do that and then you have climate change i just it's, you know, people ask me recently, I've, I've been talking to some some friends over the last few days, including my day yesterday when I wasn't here in the hut. And, you know, what what do I worry about? And I'd say, you know, North Korea is is very challenging. I mean, that's a that's a true national security threat. And for people that take the position of, well, you know, it's far away and, you know, we, it's not our business. It's going to become our business really quickly because the moment that psychopathic regime that crime family the kim family has the ability to fire nuclear weapons thousands of miles we are going to be living in a rapidly in a world with a rapidly deteriorating security situation and if that's not bad enough the possibility that they may just decide you know what we're just going to go for it you know maybe we hit america and it crumbles afterwards and we get lucky you don't know miscalculation 
at the highest levels has led to millions of people losing their lives in the past. Go back and, and read the uh, perceptions on both sides of what, what the conflict would be like in World War I, how long it would last, what likely casualties were. And, of course, you know, all, all plans are fine until plans are tested, right? Or in the immortal words of Mike Tyson, everybody's got a plan. Everyone's got a plan until they're punched in the face. Uh, that North Korea to this point hasn't fired off a nuke at a neighbor doesn't mean it won't at some other point in the future. And I think as an even likelier threat, what do we do about a North Korea that feels invulnerable to a, a feels invulnerable in the sense that it will not be deposed via force because it has a nuclear capability and then is willing to share its missile technology and its nuclear technology with the worst actors all over the world, including not just bad states like Iran and others, but maybe whoever can just pay the most for it. We've now forgotten, it seems, that the jihadists for years were hoping to get their hands on, on weapons of mass destruction. I, I know that that's become, because of the Bush administration and Iraq, almost something of a punchline, but it is Deathly serious. There's nothing funny about it. They really wanted chemical, biological, or nuclear weapons if they could get them. And they would use them on a U.S. city. They would do it. Absolutely. I mean, I could write you the jihadist propaganda screed right now that they would release simultaneously with their first mass casualty WMD attack on a U.S. city, and it would, it, would refer, it would talk about, you know, Aleppo, and it would talk about Baghdad, it would talk about all these places and say, see, you know, you killed our women and children, so we're killing as many of you as we can, and we're evening the score. That The jihadists, they're ready for it. If they could, they would. It's just they haven't been able to yet. They haven't had the capability yet, but they have the will. And the moment that you have a proliferation network in place because North Korea no longer feels like it has any credible threat of force against it because it is able to hit the U.S. homeland with a nuke, then who knows what they'll do and who they'll sell to and who they'll give munitions and advanced technology to, you know, and it's just going to get worse. This situation is not getting better. It is only getting worse. Now, I know you had the president um, talking about this, and here's what he had to say. We have uh, some interesting situations that will handle North Korea, Middle East, Lots of uh, uh, problems that we inherited from previous administrations, but we'll take care of them. We'll take care of them very well. We'll handle North Korea. We're going to be able to handle them. It'll be, uh, it will be handled. We handle everything. You've got the president saying that. You've got the vice president saying the following. And all options are on the table. Nuclear weapons in the hands of a rogue regime in North Korea represent uh, a threat to nations in the region, and now we know a threat to the United States of America. And then even Secretary of State Tillerson getting in on this discussion. We do not seek a regime change. We do not seek the collapse of the regime. We do not seek an accelerated reunification of the peninsula. We do not seek an excuse to send our military north of the 38th parallel. And we're trying to convey to the North Koreans, we are not your enemy. We're not your threat. But you are presenting an unacceptable threat to us. I don't think that's going to change any opinions in the North Korean high command. I don't think that uh, Kim Jong-un is going to say, you know what, let's change things up here. 
when you have when regime survival is considered to be literally the survival of the individuals at the top of a regime, behavior is highly unpredictable. When a government of any kind anywhere in the world feels like there is no option other than maintaining power, that to lose power would be death for everyone running the government, for their relatives, for their friends, for all that they know, all that they hold dear. What is what is beyond somebody with that mentality? What is beyond the what is beyond the capabilities of someone who believes that that's what's at stake? You have to think the Kim Jong Un regime feels that way. There is no reprieve for them if they are not running this mass concentration camp and and military parade ground that is North Korea. There is no plan B for them. There's no other option. This is why nuclear weapons for them are the, 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 first, the first priority, because regime survival is the first priority, and they feel that nuclear weapons give them that survivability. Um, now, that's a true statement without then devolving into what you had the Green Party leader, Jill Stein, whom some of you probably went, who? Jill Stein, I think she won like, you know, 0.07% of the vote or something. I, I, I made that number up. I don't know what it is. But she won. There are like five five uh, aging hippies in Portland who voted for her. Um, maybe a few others. Some uh, some people that are part of a, a, a traveling, you know, ukulele band up in Northampton, Massachusetts or something. I don't know. They, there are some people that voted for her. I like Northampton, actually. Cool town. And Portland has good food. But uh, Jill Stein did not get a lot of votes. But she did, did decide, and remember, she represents the Green Party or is the most recognizable figure in the Green Party for whatever that's worth to you. Um, she's out there saying, and, and the Green Party, of course, has really the most hardline statist political organization in the country other than, I guess, the Communist Party USA. I mean, the Greens want control of, of everything in your life under the guise of saving the planet. In order to save the planet, they'll destroy everything about your day-to-day life, right, because of a big hashtag environment. But on North Korea, she weighed in, and I just thought this was a fascinating window, brief, I'll, uh, brief though it was, into how the left just creates on, on all issues of international relations, on all issues of national security and foreign policy, the left just finds itself— in a position of moral relativism, you know, you know, there are bad people all over the world. I remember I saw this this video a while ago. It was like, you know, everyone thinks that they're okay. You know, they think somebody else is the bad guy, and this was supposed to be a profound thought. I'm like, no, that's not that's not how we that's not how the world works. That's not how rationality works. There are good people. There are bad people. There are good regimes. There are bad regimes. There are okay regimes. I mean, you know, there are shades of gray. Sure, there are nuances. There are distinctions, but you know, it's not just yeah. Everyone thinks that they're the, that they're on the right side of the issue. I mean, this is like a, a tautology. This is meaningless. But when you are a true moral relativist, um, okay. When you're a true moral relativist, you have the ability to say things like Jill Stein of the Green Party. 20- The uh, demonization of North Korea is part of the run-up to regime change. We saw it in uh, Iraq. We saw it in Libya. It's part of demonizing a government that we then want to uh, exercise regime change on. I mean, this is why you can't take some of these third-party candidates seriously on anything, because their knowledge of foreign— And look, this is what you had— 
what's this Gary uh was the libertarian guy who's you know what is what is Aleppo um who is that Johnson thank you what is Aleppo you got Jill Stein here comparing the overthrow of the Gaddafi regime on a whim by Hillary Clinton and the Obama administration, basically, to pressure on North Korea, which is just getting closer to nuclear uh, well, nuclear weapons that are on intercontinental ballistic missiles all the time, and is truly a giant, uh, as I said, it's a concentration camp and a military parade ground. I mean, it's a beyond a police state it's a slave state people are literal slaves to the state and we try to bring about positive change there through diplomacy through working with international partners through pressuring china and stein is talking about the demonization you know we don't have to demonize north korea it does plenty of that itself and in fact north korean state media which is the only media demonizes the rest of the world particularly us and tries to convince as much of the population of North Korea as possible that, you know, we want to come in and just murder their women and children and destroy the whole country, and we're these savage barbarians. And But Jill Stein's out there saying that uh, we're, we're demonizing North Korea. I mean, you know, this is, this, is some, this is along the lines of having a person of some political prominence in this country who would say, you know, these historians, you know, they're all standing around, they're all, they're all demonizing this Hitler guy, you know, they're just demonizing him. Well... Some people are demons. Some, some people actually deserve to be demonized because that's what they are. And the Kim Jong-un regime is in that position. Now, Tillerson not trying to be overly bellicose in his statements about this, I, I understand, right? I mean, he's hoping to get some change in their behavior. But all of the options we're looking at right now is uh, all the options we're looking at are, shall we say, unpalatable. There's nothing that looks like a good choice for our dealings with North Korea. And if you want to be worried about a place, I mean, this is this CNN poll about what we're worried about. You know, don't don't stay up late at night worried about climate change. I promise you that's a waste of time. Uh, but North Korea in five, ten years, things could get ugly. And by the way, things could, ugly, could get ugly with North Korea tomorrow. North Korea could inflict a an attack on South Korea, on Seoul, and as you know, we've got tens of thousands of U.S. troops stationed in South Korea. They could mass casualties, hundreds of thousands probably. I, mean, I don't know what the real estimates are, but just based on all the artillery, all the military hardware they've got pointed at South Korea, at least tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of casualties in a day tomorrow. It could just happen. But you'll notice, you know, Democrats get all, ooh, they're all, all worried about climate change. Uh, I find North Korea to be a much more, uh, much more formidable, pressing, and real threat to us. Um, I uh, do I have to? Okay, we got, we got. I'm just get, I'm just getting rolling here. We gotta go to break. I got some breaking news for you here. The Justice Department, according to the New York Times, the Trump administration's Justice Department, the DOJ, is going to take on affirmative action in college admissions. Um, they are, this is based on an internal announcement to the Civil Rights Division. There's a document the New York Times has seen that I'm sure was, was leaked to the Times from some, probably from some social justice warrior who's like, what are we going to do? Now we can't, now we can't just continue to turn a blind eye to what is, what is racial discrimination? Affirmative action in college admissions is racial discrimination. Full stop. 
That's what it is. You, you can come up with all kinds of really clever ways of putting context into the discussion and 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 you can pull on people's heartstrings about historical wrongs or whatever it may be. It's racial discrimination. That's what it is. It is discriminating on the basis of race. And to borrow from one of our esteemed Supreme Court justices, if you want people to stop discriminating on race or by race, stop discriminating by race. Don't think you're going to make the problem go away by doing what you think is discrimination in the right direction or discrimination for the right groups at the expense of other groups. This is a debate. I, I This is a debate that the left cannot win on the merits. Democrats cannot win this debate on the merits. They always have to make it on about emotion and about perception and the media waiting to jump on anyone who will speak honestly about this issue of affirmative action in college admissions specifically as harboring racial resentment or as being a secret Nazi or a secret Trump supporter or something, right? There's always some attack the messenger, attack those who will speak truth on this issue and not get right right down to the heart of it. I mean, this is one of the uh, one of the study, uh, case studies that we would get into when I was uh, in the political science department and studying the political science department at Amherst College under Professor, the only conservative in the poli sci department, Hadley Arkies, Professor Arkies. You can still get his books on on him, and I'm not even plugging him because he's a guest or something. I'm just saying, if you want to read conservative political philosophy from a contemporary uh, political theorist, uh, Arkies has quite a body of original work that you can get. It's it's dense, I'm not going to lie. He's got his own sense of humor. Ah, Mr. Shaxton, did you do the reading for today? I mean, he's got his own sense of humor, but a very erudite fellow and uh, used to rock the bow tie way before even Tucker Carlson. So, what was I saying about Arkies? Oh yeah, we studied affirmative action and went through all of the ethical and moral and philosophical cases for and against and this is it's just it's just cut and dry you cannot have a society that claims to be uh, based in rule of law and uh, and due process for all and equal rights for all and also say that well today for now we're going to give some people additional rights based on skin color that that positive discrimination is not a form of discrimination that is non-discriminatory. You know, you run around in circles as you describe it. Anyway, I'll probably have more for you on this because I this would be this is a great fight for the Trump administration because you want to talk about that culture war and the revolt against the elites on college campuses. Affirmative action, it's discrimination, and we should call it that. We'll be back. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. All right, team, welcome back. We've got Kim Strassel on the line. She is the author of The Intimidation Game, How the Left is Silencing Free Speech. She's also a member of the Wall Street Journal's editorial board. She writes at WSJ.com. Her latest is Who Paid for the Trump Dossier? Good question. Kim, great to have you back. It is great to be here, Buck. So tell me, who, who paid for the Trump dossier and why does that matter in the current back and forth over all things Trump? The thing is, we don't know. And what's more interesting is that Democrats do not want us to know. And that gets to the heart of this story. Look, we know that an oppo research firm called Fusion GPS 
hired a um, former British spy to put together this dossier, and that spy relied on Russian sources to source some of his material, a lot of his material. What we don't know is who hired Fusion GPS to engage in this exercise. And the reason that this has become more important recently is we've got more details showing that Fusion, even as it was digging up dirt on Trump via ex-spies and Russian sources, that it was doing another job on behalf of a, a Russian company with ties to the Kremlin. So I think Senator Chuck Grassley put it the best way. He said, we've got Fusion GPS. It appears to have been working with someone with ties to Russian intelligence as part of a pro-Russia lobbying effort while it was simultaneously overseeing the creation of the Trump-Russia dossier. Do we have any connections or at least any indications of connections between uh, senior Democrats, the DNC, and, and Fusion GPS? What are they? I and mean, what are the connections? Well, what we know is that Fusion was initially hired by anti-Trump Republicans in 2015 to begin trying to put dirt together on him. At some point, when it was clear that Mr. Trump had won the nomination, those Russian or those Republican backers went away, and Democrats instead began funding the effort. We don't know who they are, but again, the people I talked to investigating this, looking into things, it is notable that the head of Fusion GPS, one of its co-founders, Glenn Simpson, he's supposed to be coming in for an interview with the Senate. And his condition for agreeing to talk to them was that he didn't have to tell you, he didn't have to tell them who it was that hired him. And the Democrats on, on, Chuck, on a Chuck Grassley's committee have backed Mr. Simpson in that request, gone to the mat for him. That suggests to me that it is a high-level Democratic name or outfit, something like the DNC or Hillary Clinton, that was behind the hiring because people seem very, very concerned about making sure that Mr. Simpson doesn't have to say who it is. What do you think is the most likely explanation right now for that meeting that got so much attention, Kim, a few weeks ago between—I mean, in the news, not, not that the meeting was a few weeks ago—but uh, between Donald Trump Jr., Kushner, Manafort— uh, and then Veselnitskaya and these other characters that were in the room. What do you think brought them all together? I mean, we know that there's this weird fusion Magnitsky Act connection, but it still seems like it's murky. It's definitely murky. Well, look, here's what we know about Veselnitskaya and also another Russian naturalized American who were at that meeting, the two of them. Both of them were working on behalf of either a Russian company or the Russian government. We're not sure because we don't know entirely what their ties are to different actors in Russia, but they were there to try to bring down the Magnitsky Act. And it seems, excuse me, so they were there to try to bring down the Magnitsky Act. And they might have said that they wanted to talk about adoption, but their real goal was, in fact, to bring down this law. What's interesting is that this is what they were working with Fusion GPS on as well, too. Right, that that seems like quite a coincidence, Kim. That's all. It seems like quite a coincidence. <laughs> quite a coincidence. A huge coincidence. And I think, look, here's the interesting question. How tight was Fusion GPS with this lawyer and this lobbyist? How tight were the lawyer and the lobbyist with the Kremlin? 
did they find out about uh, or even work with Fusion on this other question of where they were putting together the dossier? Did they tip the Kremlin off that this exercise was going on? Did the Kremlin then therefore plant information with this ex-British spy? Were they behind the dossier in the end? And I think if we're out there and, you know, Robert Mueller, the special counsel, is looking at, you know, just exactly how Russia interfered with this election, uh, it seems that this is a far greater smoking gun to me than, you know, plumbing the depths of some Trump real estate deals from 2008. We're speaking to Kim Strassel. She's author of The Intimidation Game, and she is also on the Wall Street Journal's editorial board. Kim, I, I just I got you on the line. You're somebody who really understands the ins and outs of, of D.C., what the heck is going on down there with the Scaramucci being gone? He was in for like 10 days, and now we've got this General Kelly taking over as chief of staff. I, I feel like there are two ways to interpret this, and or, or maybe you'll offer up a third or some combination of the two. It's either this is now finally when everything changes or nothing will really change, and this is just another iteration of how this White House does business. What do you think? It all comes down, in my mind, to what the terms of employment were that General Flynn made to Donald Trump in taking this position Kelly. as chief of staff. I'm sorry, General, General <laughs> Kelly. I'm sorry. That's all right. That happens. <laughs> We've got a lot of generals. There's just there's so much. Yeah, I, I just don't think General Flynn has a lot of leverage these days. But go ahead. He doesn't. He has no leverage. In fact, he should have been talking part of the discussion about Russia. But anyway. Uh, General Kelly, what were the conditions when he took this job? Because they wanted him to do that position all the way back at the beginning of the administration. He didn't really want to. So the fact that he's agreed to now leads me to believe that he probably said, I will do this on the condition that this is what gets to happen. And it sounds already as though at least one of those was that all the staff has to report to him which is a good first step. That's how it's supposed to work. It's really only the way, only way to operate a White House efficiently and without endless leaks and internal fighting. So that's a start. And he clearly, the Scaramucci firing was his way of saying, I am in control and sending out a message symbolically and beyond that things were going to operate in a different fashion. The question though is what else has Mr. Trump, President Trump agreed to do? Um, Is he going to let Kelly go looking for leaks? Is he going to abide by the promises to have staff come through Kelly? If he's going to continue to have this pop in, open door, come visit with the president situation, none of this is going to work. So I think we're going to have to wait to see what kind of discipline or rigor, if any, uh, General Kelly is able to put on this White House. Look, President Trump is not one that really likes to be hemmed in, and there's going, you know, that might not ever be possible. But the chief's job is to run the staff. And if somebody can get the staff in line, that would at least be a step towards a very different Trump administration. Do you think that they'll be able to stop these? Now, I always have to separate it out when we discuss this, you know, when I talk about this uh, with, with everybody. There are the leaks that are national security leaks. I know you've written about that, too. But but what the White House uh, switch uh, of personnel has to do with is much more. And, and when they talk about leaks, I feel like a lot of the time they're talking about palace intrigue leaks. 
how how do they find that or how do they shut that down? I mean, are they going to be running there? Because that's not a criminal issue. So you can't have the FBI just pull someone's phone records because you think that maybe they said that, you know, Donald was meeting with a media figure recently or something. That That's not classified. Right. So you, you, you can't do that. But so what do you think they do in order to get discipline in this White House? I mean, is it just they go on a hunch? How do they do this? Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how they track it down, although I would say this. The the number of players that are often in the room during some of these meetings is limited, and so when that information leaks out, you've already are looking at a narrower group of people. Now, that didn't help Ryan's Priebus much because he didn't have much respect among any of the staff, and they knew that even the president wasn't uh, loath to sometimes take a shot at him. Uh, he was certainly not held in high regard, and no one feared him. And that's what the chief of staff has to be. He has to be a fearful figure, and he has to let it be known that if you are the one that is believed to be leaking, you will be gone. Because these palace intrigue stories, as you call them, and that is exactly what they are, have been an enormous source of damage to the Trump administration. Every day they're putting out another fire about who said this and, and who's in a power struggle. None of this is unusual in administrations. You often have those power struggles, but they're kept behind the scenes, and the chief keep people working together, whether they like each other or not. Who do you think and are the act- most powerful people in this administration right now, other than President Trump, Kim? I just want your, your estimation, your analysis on that. <laughs> well, I would like to hope now that General Kelly is, um, uh, and we will, we will see about that. But look, there's a lot of people, I think, left over from the campaign. I think Steve Bannon obviously matters. I think Kellyanne Conway, though, although she's not in sort of as active a role, I think she matters. The people that matter the most, of course, though, are President Trump's family. Um, and, and that, to me, is going to be one of the big challenges that General Kelly is going to have. Now, apparently, even Jared and Ivanka, they all said that they were going to go through him for official Oval Office meeting business. But, you know, their family, like they run into dad on outside of the Oval Office. What discussions get had there? Um, and how does that mess with the overall strategy and plan uh, in terms of, of White House management? Do you have an assessment that you could share with us about Reince Priebus as, as RNC head? I mean, I just feel like people have done a lot of Reince retrospectives now. He obviously didn't have a tremendous amount of impact in this administration. But did you feel like he was effective as a Republican uh, Republican official previously? Did you feel like he was a, a if you got to have an establishment guy in the administration, at least he had a track record of success? Or was that overstated? When we step back and people look back at the last couple of election cycles and the Donald Trump win, what Reince Priebus will be and should be remembered for is the guy who, when he ran the RNC, pushed that organization to dramatically leap forward on the things that matter most, which are uh, voter records, uh, get out the vote operations, etc. Because Barack Obama's team was incredibly good at that. They wiped the floor with the RNC for several election cycles in a row. There was an analysis done internally that that needed to change, um, and and he invested an enormous amount of money and effort into updating. And by most accounts, people will say not just in the 2016 election but the 2014 election where they – uh, really made some big gains in the Senate. That was uh, a lot of it was down to a much better RNC ground game. And do you have any expectations, or uh, w- what are your expectations for what the Republican Congress 
Well, by the way, we're speaking to Kim Strassel of the Wall Street Journal. She's also author of The Intimidation Game. We're talking taxes now. At least they're talking taxes down in D.C. You got the Democrats drawing something of a line in the sand on what they'll go for if they're supposed to go along. But they don't have to go along. So are Republicans in Congress going to finally do something, Kim, or are they going to manage to never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity? Well, so far, they have never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity, and that shouldn't fill any of us with a great deal of confidence. The one thing I would say about I guess there's there's two ways to look at this. Uh, On the one side, there is a great deal more agreement among Republicans on the basic principles of tax reform. And there has been a great deal of effort and work that has gone into tax reform up until now. You had you know, Paul Ryan is the head of Ways and Means Committee uh, leading up through Kevin Brady, uh, Dave Camp in the middle there. Every one of them was focused on it. So there's been a lot of working groups, lots of hearings, lots of thoughts about the best way to do this. That's positive. I think on the other side, what is scary is that tax reform in many ways in terms of getting it done is more complicated than even healthcare. Because you've got every corporation in America and their lobbyists in D.C. trying to make sure that this little special perk for them doesn't go away or that this gets inserted. Uh, You've got a lot of different members who have constituents with a lot of varying uh, goals and priorities. So it's kind of the swampiest of swamps in a way, isn't it? It is the ugliest of swamps. And so that's going to be the challenge is can they keep in mind the end goal here, which is a pro-growth tax reform based on a couple of concrete principles and be willing to say no to the swamp. And I guess we'll find out in the coming months. Yeah, I guess we will. I'm, I'm not holding my breath. I'm sure you're not either. Kim Strassel, everybody, author of The Intimidation Game. Check out her book on Amazon and also read her stuff at WallStreetJournal.com. Kim, thank you so much for making the time. Thank you, Buck. Team, we're going to hit a break. We'll be right back. Well, team, I managed to move here in New York City, so that was why I was out yesterday. I appreciate Brian Suits from KFI stepping in and taking the helm here in the Freedom Hut. Uh, I was busy from, well, I was packing until about 2 o'clock in the morning Sunday night and also just all day long moving stuff around here in New York City, and it was it was just madness. Uh, it, what I found out, and, and this is something that you learn when you're in a, in a major city, you know, there are all of these apps, there are these uh, websites, all these different ways that you can sell your stuff. And, and, you know, you get attached to stuff and you start to think that, hey, that dresser that I have, you know, it's pretty nice. Or that couch, maybe it looks a bit like something from a, a hunting lodge in the 1970s. Uh, but, you know, it's a nice little comfy couch. I can surely get some money for that. Um, no. In fact, what, what I found out from this most recent move is that your old junk, or at least my old junk, maybe your old junk is a treasure and everybody would want it. But my old junk uh, has negative value, meaning that I couldn't even give away the furniture in my apartment. I offered it up for free. And there were some initial inquiries. But then when people would get additional photos or they go, Nah, I don't think I want your stuff. And in fact, I can understand why this. there are some companies now uh, that have really grown in New York City where they just show up and they take away your crap. Like they take away stuff that you don't want, your junk, your... And you know, this is now, this is the, the reverse of the Craigslist effect where I used to think that, and I did, I sold and bought, you know, old tables and 
I bought uh, patio furniture on Craigslist, and and I resold it when I was down in D.C. Now you have to pay somebody else to come and take your stuff away, and I was just sad. I even offered to donate with my moving truck myself showing up. I offered to donate furniture to a charity here in New York City so that they could just sell it, and I was just going to leave it with them to sell, and they were like, nah, sorry, we don't want your old stuff. Wow. This is a this is a changed world, I feel like. So anyway, that was one experience that I would not want to replay. In New York City, finding a place to even leave your stuff that you don't want anymore is very hard. And also, moving takes three times as much time and energy as whatever it is you plan for, at least in my estimation. That's what it is. So I thought I could get it all done in about 36 hours, and it was well over three days of packing and work and everything else. So maybe I guess guess it's double, uh, double what you planned for. But it it ended up being a lot. It ended up being a lot of work. Anyway, I'm really happy that I'm in my new place, uh, living right in the dead smack center of Manhattan. The great part about that is that uh, it will be really easy for me to get into the studio. I'm not going to burn up any time or very little time getting into the Freedom Hut, which means there's just more time for content and me to think about what we do here on the show. So that's all exciting. And, you know, I'm now living out of boxes for a few days, but moving builds character. I like to think of it that way. It builds character. So uh, with all that, of course, I just want to ask you all to please uh, download the show whenever you get a chance. Uh, Share it with a friend. The uh, Share Team Buck with a Friend program we've got going here is really the most important way that the show can grow. Of course, you can tell anybody to listen on the iHeart app as well, Buck Sexton with America Now, and bucksexton.com slash store. If you want to pick up a t-shirt, get any gear, please do. Really excited to be back with you all. I missed you on my one day off on Monday, my rare day off. I'll be with you every day this week and next and the week after. So until then, my friends, no matter what comes your way, she'll talk.